You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. Regarding the Bible, as the video kind of said, is it is made up of 66 books. You got 39 in the Old Testament and 27 books in the New Testament. And the Bible is the number one best-selling book of all time. Business Insider records the Bible has sold 3.9 billion, with a B, billion copies just over the last 50 years alone. Now, one thing that is really vitally important to understand about the Bible And what makes this one book so different and and uniquely stand apart from any other book in the world is that while it was written by imperfect and fallible men, it must also be understood first and foremost and more importantly that the Bible is inspired by God. That is one of the most often cited criticisms I hear by non-believers is that when they look at or they think about the Bible, they dismiss it because they say, well, that was just written by sinful, imperfect, fallible men. And while that's true, it's also equally important to remember, and I think you have to factor this one thing in, First and foremost, above that criticism, is you also have to understand and acknowledge that it is inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture, from Genesis 1.1 through the end of Revelation, all Scripture is inspired by God. And it is useful to teach us what is true, and to make us realize what is wrong in someone else's life. Is that its purpose? No. It's to help you understand and see what's wrong in your life. It straightens us out. And it teaches us to do what is right. It's God's way of preparing us in every way fully equipped for every good thing God wants us to do. So the Bible teaches very clearly, and Paul states there, that the Bible is inspired by God. Now, what what does Paul mean by that word inspired? When he says that the Bible, all Scripture, is inspired by God, what does he mean by that? And what is God's role in the inspiration of Scripture? Inspiration, I'm going to explain, I'm going to define what that word means. It is the unique, special, divine influence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of holy, God-fearing men. And yes, they were were sinful, they were imperfect, they were infallible, but they were also men who were faithful to God. They loved God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. They were God-fearing, God-honoring men. And that qualified them and enabled them to make an accurate, infallible, and truthful record of divine truth regarding the will of God to mankind. 
Now, the purpose of inspiration, it is to secure and to ensure truth and unity in what is written. So God's role in the inspiration of the Bible was God was there to kind of oversee and to supervise through his Holy Spirit that what those imperfect, fallible, yet God-honoring, God-fearing men wrote, that what they recorded was accurate, that it was truthful, and it was faithful to God's revelation. Inspiration simply means that God oversaw, he supervised the recording of everything that was written in the scriptures, and he did that to ensure and to guarantee its accuracy and truth. The truths God spoke that are recorded in the Bible are correctly and accurately the truths God spoke, exactly the way God spoke it. The lies that are recorded in the Bible. And by the word lies, I mean the lies the serpent told Adam and Eve there in the Garden of Eden. The lie that Abraham said when he said that Sarah was his sister um, and not his wife. The lie when Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter Five, when they lied about the price that they sold the property for. When I talk about the lies that are recorded in the scripture, those are the lies I'm talking about. And so those lies that are recorded in the Bible, they are accurately and they are truthfully the lies that were told. Inspiration means the stories of rebellion that are recorded in the Bible are accurately and truthfully the rebellions that took place, the heresies that were taught, the crimes that were committed, they were accurately, truthfully, faithfully, the heresies that were taught and the crimes that were committed. When 2 Timothy 3.16 speaks of all Scripture being inspired by God, what Paul is conveying to us is that all that is recorded in the Bible that God has taken upon himself to ensure and to guarantee that everything that is written in those 66 books is accurate and it is truthful to what was actually said and done. And that's why, when it, to me, when it comes to the word of God, it was not just written by imperfect infallible men, but it was inspired, it was supervised, it was oversaw by a perfect, holy God who through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit was working in and through those men and they were able to produce 66 divinely authored books. So that leads to the question, why just 66 books? What was it about these 66 books that make up our canon of Scripture from all other historical, religious writings? How and who decided these 66 books would make up the canon of Scripture? I get people who ask me every so often about other religious writings, such as the book of Enoch. They talk about the gospel of Nicodemus, the epistle of Barnabas, as well as others. And they'll say, why were these books discarded and not included in the canon of Scripture? 
So from the writings of biblical and church historians, we find that there were at least what they called five principles or five standards that were applied and used to kind of guide the recognition and the, coll <coughs> the collection of the 66 books that really became officially uh, the recognized canon of Scripture. And I want to just quickly go through these because, again, I think oftentimes we really don't recognize or fully appreciate the, the process that they went through in order to arrive at the 66 books that we have. So those five questions, those standards that were applied to each book were one, was the book written by a prophet of God? If it was written by someone who was a spokesperson for God, and for instance, Moses, we know that Moses was a spokesperson for God and why he was enabled to author the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, okay? So if, if they were a prophet or a spokesman for God, then it was the word of God. Second was, was the writer confirmed by acts of God? Frequently, miracles are what separated true prophets from false prophets. Moses in Exodus chapter 4, he was given miraculous powers to prove his call by God. Elijah, remember he triumphed over the false prophets uh, of Baal, uh, again, to prove and to authenticate his call of God. Acts 2.22 says that God publicly endorsed Jesus of Nazareth by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him. So a miracle is an act of God to confirm the word of God given through a prophet of God to the people of God. The third question and standard that was applied was, did the message tell the truth about God? No book with false or inaccurate claims can be the word of God. And the early church fathers' policy was, if in doubt, throw it out. Fourth question or standard was, does it come with the power of God? The early church fathers believed the word of God is, as Hebrews 4.12 says, living and active. And that it should have the power to evangelize the loss as well as transform lives. So if a particular book did not really have the power of God to edify or to change a life, then they believed that God apparently was not behind its message. So this presence of God's transforming power was a very strong indication that this book had God's stamp of approval. The fifth and final question and standard that was applied was, was it accepted, was it received by the people of God? The Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, and again, he's speaking to the uh, people of, of Thessal Thessalonica, and he says, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, he said, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. So when a particular writing was received, collected, read, and shared by the people of God as the word of God, it was regarded as canonical. And we again see this in 2 Peter 3.16, where the Apostle Paul, he acknowledges Peter's writings as scripture uh, on par or with the same level of authority as Old Testament scripture. 
And so when all five of these questions or standards were solidly and thoroughly satisfied, those religious writings are what kind of went on uh, to become the recognized canon of the Old Testament and New Testament scripture. And again, it's important to note that the church did not create the canon of scripture it didn't determine which books uh, would be called the Scripture, the Word of God. Instead, the church recognized. They kind of discovered which books had been inspired from their inception. To put it another way, the, a book is not simply the Word of God because it was accepted by the people of God. Rather, it was accepted by the people of God because it came across. They, they received it. They acknowledged that it was the Word of God. And that's what gives the book its divine authority. It's God. It's not the people of God. They merely recognized the divine authority which God gives it. Now, with all of that in mind, with everything I just said, I want to turn our attention this morning to a very, very specific uh, and what I think is a very interesting book in the New Testament. And I say interesting because I, I believe it clearly meets and exceeds all five of those questions and standards I just mentioned here. But it's also one of those books you don't really hear a lot about. This particular book of the New Testament, it just has one chapter, 25 verses. And of those 25 verses, you rarely, if ever, hear anyone quote a verse from, the New Test from this particular New Testament book. If you read this, you'll find there's really no promises of God contained in there. Rarely, if ever, will you hear a sermon on this particular book or a speaker mention it, which again leads to the question, why was this particular book included in the New Testament? And the New Testament book I'm referring to is the book of Philemon. And it is sandwiched in between Titus and Hebrews. Now again, the main takeaway that I get from reading through the book of Philemon is this, is that God is always at work for good. No matter who it is, no matter what they've done, God is able, and you're going to see this in the story of Philemon, God is able to take any situation we may find ourselves in, <clears throat> even if it's by our own devices, that God is able to take the most unfortunate of circumstances and God is able to weave it and to bring it out for our good. Over and over again and again throughout scripture and human history, God takes the worst of people, the worst of their choices, and when we repent, when we turn to him, God is able to redeem those horrible circumstances and bring forth goodness and blessing out of it. And the book of Philemon is a story of a God who is able to take a, bro a person whose life was broken in many pieces and bring forth wholeness, goodness, and restoration from it. 
The book of Philemon kind of encapsulates, for me at least, what Paul stated there in Romans 8.28 when he wrote, and he said, and we know or we are confident that God is able to take all things and to work it together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So let's dig into this very unique, this very interesting story. And I believe once we have finished here, you'll kind of have a better understanding why this particular book's included in the New Testament. Now, the book of Philemon is very, very unique in that it is the only personal letter of the Apostle Paul to be included in the New Testament. All of Paul's other epistles or his writings, it was addressed to different churches. It was maybe uh, to different churches, and they they would share that amongst uh, the the community of churches there. But this book, Philemon, it, it is a personal letter that Paul wrote to an individual, a layman by the name of Philemon, and the story behind it is extremely intriguing. Now, one other element that makes the book of Philemon so appealing, and one reason I believe it's included in the New Testament, is because it so clearly demonstrates the effective, transforming power and work of God in the life of of an individual in the life of social relationships and how our relationship to Christ should be reflected in dealing with sin in our personal life and in our relationships with one another. So let me give you a little bit of background on the book of Philemon. Many years before, Paul is evangelizing in a city um, named Ephesus. And there at some point, Paul crosses paths with Philemon, and it was, uh, it was a, a meeting in which Philemon hears the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he is converted uh, to Christianity. And while there, Paul is uh, instrumental um, in ministering to uh, Philemon that he becomes a very devout and a very dedicated follower of Jesus Christ. And Philemon returns back to his hometown of Colosso, and there he kind of establishes a very vibrant uh, and flourishing home church. And, and like so many people in, in the day and age of Philemon, Philemon was a slave owner. And it's estimated that at this particular time in history, there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire alone. As a matter of fact, the whole ancient world kind of rested and was built upon this kind of social arrangement. And one of Philemon's possessions was a young slave whose name was Onesimus. And it seemed that one day Onesimus did a very dumb, a very foolish, a very dangerous and risky thing. He stole some money and or possessions from his master Philemon and he fled to Rome. Now history doesn't really give us a whole lot of detail how Onesimus, this slave, crosses paths with Philemon's old friend, the apostle Paul. By this time, we know that the Apostle Paul, he's under arrest. He's being held in a prison uh, there in Rome. 
It could be that Onesimus had been arrested around this same time and was somehow maybe thrown into the same cell with the Apostle Paul. Uh, and again, uh, we don't know the exact arrangements of how this all happened, but what we do know is that somehow a runaway slave uh, and thief and an imprisoned apostle Paul came into contact with each other, and through Paul's ministry to this slave, Onesimus experiences a very powerful conversion, and as a result, he becomes a very dedicated and devout follower of Jesus Christ as well. Now, the name Onesimus, it literally means useful. And what you find, interestingly, is Paul uses that name Onesimus, that, that idea of usefulness. He, he references that um, in his letter uh, to Philemon. There in verse 11, he says, Onesimus used to be useful in name but now he is useful by nature. So Paul recognizes his name literally means useful, but now he is not only just useful in name, he's also useful in, uh, by nature and purpose. So again, uh, Paul's acknowledging that, that Christ has a way of taking a wrecked and troubled life and somehow transforming it into a powerful and a productive life. And Paul describes this very transformation in 2 Corinthians 5.17, where Paul says, those who are in Christ, which Onesimus was by, at that point, those who are in Christ have become new persons. They are not the same anymore, for the old life is gone, new life has begun. And, and Paul believed that, literally believed that, and, and would acknowledge that that transforming work was um, happening in the life of Onesimus. And so as a, as a result of this transformation, this conversion in Onesimus's life, he and Paul become very affectionately bonded to one another. And, and that young slave goes on to be of great help to Paul during his time in prison there in Rome. And yet for all of the miraculous change that Christ has brought into the life of, of Onesimus, Paul knew quite well that the past could not just be forgotten or avoided forever. Authentic Christian faith should enable and empower us to face up to our past, our past mistakes, our failures, the ways that maybe we have hurt others, and, and to go back and to make amends for that. And so I say that because there had to come a day when Onesimus heard the words that he probably feared when Paul probably said to him, Onesimus, it's time for you to go back to your owner Philemon and you need to ask his forgiveness and you need to make amends for all you did. Now, I say that those words probably brought great terror and fear to the heart of Onesimus because runaway slaves in that day were treated with swift and extreme harshness. As a matter of fact, the whole fabric of ancient life was built upon and rested on slavery, and extreme measures were taken to deter any kind of uprising against it, much like Onesimus had done. In fact, the practice of crucifixion really kind of came about. It was invented by the Romans to keep would-be troublemakers and runaway slaves in their place. 
And again, offenders were oftentimes very cruelly and they were visibly um, um, crucified. Uh, and again, as an example to all who see that, that you don't want to do that because if you do what he's done, they're going to do the same thing um, to you. So therefore, Onesimus could have well argued with Paul and said, you know what, by asking me to go back, do you realize what, you're, what, what kind of a fate you may be uh, subjecting me to? So since Paul could not go with Onesimus, Paul's under house arrest there in Rome, Paul does the next best thing. He writes a letter to his friend, to his brother in Christ, Philemon. And he asks Philemon to do an absolutely revolutionary thing. And in the book, what he says to Onesimus, or to Philemon is, I want you to look upon Onesimus, not as a runaway slave, but what he is now, and that is a faithful brother in Christ. And so Paul tells how Onesimus had really become a part of his own heart, how Onesimus had really been a comfort and a source of strength to him uh, during his time of imprisonment. As a matter of fact, Paul reveals the closeness of his relationship to Onesimus in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, Philemon, to show any kindness to my child, Onesimus, I became his father in the faith while here in prison. So again, Paul asks Philemon, and he appeals to him as a brother in Christ. I want you to step out of the culture, and I want you to look at this situation from an extremely different and new perspective. And I want you to look at Onesimus the way that Christ would look at him. And just as an aside note, in verse 18, Paul references whatever Onesimus stole from Philemon or any wrong committed by Onesimus. And he says, if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, Paul says, charge that to my account. I'll pay for that. That's my debt now. And isn't that what Christ has done for us through the cross? Jesus took all of our wrongs, our mistakes, our failures, our debts, the sin in our lives, and he charged them to his account. And then he paid that account in full when he died on the cross for you and me. And Paul simply mirrors that example of Christ, and he appeals to his brother Philemon to follow that very example of Christ. And this is what the letter of Philemon is all about. And this is the appeal that Paul makes to his friend Philemon and the chance he asks Onesimus to take. Now again, you got to understand there is high stakes on all sides of this revolutionary drama. And yet, Almighty God, who is at work for good in all things, did with the story of Onesimus what he has done again and again over and over throughout human history. God is able to take all of the broken, twisted, messed up parts of our lives, our failures, our mistakes, and once we offer them up to him, God takes all of that and he uses it in a way that only he can and he takes what we see as curses and setbacks and God transforms them and he uses them to become blessings and victories for us. 
And the big question often comes down to, do we trust God enough? Do we trust him enough to give it all to him? Do we trust that God is as good as he says he is? Do we trust that God is as faithful as he claims to be? Do we believe that God is as good as his word states? Do we trust him to be gracious and forgiving, loving and redeeming as he says he is? You see, there's a sequel to the letter here in the New Testament, or as Paul Harvey would say, now the rest of the story. Obviously, Philemon did rise to the occasion, and he did what Paul asked him to do towards Onesimus, this runaway slave. And Philemon forgives Onesimus. And the tradition is that Philemon not only forgave and treated Onesimus as a brother in Christ, but historians say that, that Philemon set him free and sent him back to the imprisoned Paul there in Rome. And again, the tradition is, is that Onesimus became one of Paul's most trusted and valued associates. And the reason for believing this is because 50 years after the letter to Philemon was written, the bishop of Antioch, whose name was Ignatius, wrote a letter to the bishop of Ephesus, a letter that still exists today. And do you know the name of that bishop? It is other, it's no one other than Onesimus, the once forgiven slave. There's every reason to think that the slave who once stole money fled into the night with no higher purpose than to lose himself amongst the hordes of Rome, eventually by the grace and goodness of God and the mercy of a lot of people, became one of the bishops of the early church. But that's not all. Another tradition is that Paul's letters were first collected and they were circulated. They were, they were circulated among all the other churches. They were collected and circulated by the church of Ephesus. And it was there that it was first recognized that these epistles had lasting spiritual, universal, and, etern and eternal value. And this is how they became a part of our New Testament. And who do you suppose was most responsible for collecting and distributing those letters? Most biblical scholars attribute this to the work of the bishop of that place at that time, a man named Onesimus. And this would explain why amid all of the letters that are addressed to churches, there would be included this one personal letter between Paul and Philemon. It was as if Onesimus was saying to us, let me tell you how I came to be. From one who had done an evil and despicable deed, here is what the forgiving, redeeming grace of Jesus Christ can do. And again, had it not been for Onesimus, we might not have all of the letters we have today of the Apostle Paul. If he had not been a runaway slave, he maybe would have never met the Apostle Paul. And if Paul had not seen him as someone uh, who was useful, not just by name but in nature, someone for whom Christ died, that maybe Onesimus never would have been converted. And the truth is there's a lot of things that happen in our lives. Things we don't like, things we don't understand, 
But Paul says this one thing we do understand, this one thing we can be confident about. And we know that in all things, the good and the bad, the wanted, the unwanted, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's why sometimes it's, it's too early. It's too premature to come to a conclusion about any event in our lives. But it's never, ever too late to live in hope and faith and in confident openness. There are a lot of things that will always kind of be maybe a mystery to us about God in this life, but Paul says here's one thing we can count on. God means us good. And in all things, God is steadfastly, faithfully working to bring good out of it. So this morning, I want to just encourage you, if you're maybe in one of those tough times in life, don't shut God out. Invite him in. And just like in Onesimus's life, God will come in with all of his goodness, all of his rich mercy, his amazing grace, his boundless love, his infinite wisdom, and God will turn all of that, the bad, the unwanted, the horrible mistakes and failures on our parts or the things that have been done to us by others, God will take all of that and he'll turn it and he'll use it for good in our lives. And it's just a reminder that God loves us more than we'll ever know and that his plan for our lives is really ultimately for our well-being, for our redemption, for our restoration, and for our goodness. Amen? Let's stand together this morning, and we're just going to do this prayer of consecration again. I just invite you. It's not required. I just invite you, if you're comfortable, again, just to extend your hands uh, out in front of you as a way of, again, as we let go of the things that we need to let go of, it also enables us to receive the things that God has for us this morning. And let's just pray this together. Father God, I thank you that you are ever faithful ever constant and ever sure. Your faithfulness is from everlasting to everlasting. I thank you that when I am weak, you are strong on my behalf. When I am fearful, you are my peace. When I am broken, you are my healer. When I am lost, you are the way, the truth, and the life. When I am hurting, you are my rest, my comforter. When I am anxious and worried, you are my peace, my shalom. When I am persecuted, you are my shield, my defender. When I am doubtful, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. When I am in need, you are my provider, my every provision. So, Father God, as I go forth from this place, I thank you that you go with me, your Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Counselor, goes with me. Help me to keep my eyes upon you, my ears to hear you, my heart to love you, and my spirit attuned to your spirit, to live life in the fullness of your presence, to be confident in knowing 
that all things work together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Enable and empower me to be a faithful servant, a man, a woman after your own heart, and one who is faithful to serve your purposes in this generation. Amen. Thank you.